Hey everybody, welcome to episode 66 of Literary Disco. Gabriel. It's all fathers and sons today on Literary Disco. We're going to talk about a newly published book-length poem by Edward Hirsch, all about his son, who died at the age of 22. The poem, like his late son, is named Gabriel. And up first, a bookshelf revisit on the theme. We'll each pull our favorite father-son work of literature down from the shelf. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me are essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Hi, guys. Hi there. What's going on? Hey, before, before we talk about dads, can I say something very important? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I've been traveling around for my, my book, and I've been going to a bunch of independent bookstores. Can I just say... Going into a bookstore is awesome. Yeah. And I know most people who listen to our podcast probably buy all of their books online or like we're talking and you hit the button and you buy a book. But like last night, I was at a bookstore called Poison Pen in Scottsdale, Arizona. And this Sunday, I'm actually going to be some, I'm going to be at a, a bookstore in the Bay Area called Diesel. But Poison Pen is one of the last straight mystery bookstores. All they sell is mystery fiction at Poison Pen. And there used to be like 75 of these stores. Yeah, the I country. feel like there used to be one in every city. You would always find, there, or at least yeah, one. there you was. Know, New York used to have yeah. like three or four, and L.A. had a bunch. Yeah, L.A. had the Mystery Bookstore, which is a great mystery bookstore, and it closed down um, a couple years ago, sadly. And I, that was like, that was a like every time I came to L.A., I'd pop in the Mystery Bookstore. I'd talk to the people who worked there. I'd say, hey, what's good? And they'd sell me a book. Um, but a Poison Pen is just all crime novels, all crime fiction, and... I was just, you know, I went in there early and was just walking around and looking at stuff. And there's all the signed books of every author who's come through town. And I was just remembering, you know, before we bought everything online, just how much time I used to spend just sitting in bookstores, looking at books and then buying the ones I'd read read a little bit of. I don't do that on Amazon Mm -hmm. or Powell's or anything. I don't ever just like scroll through the books and see what's interesting. But going into a bookstore and just hanging out for a little bit talking to the bookseller man that is the best thing on earth well i just love going on to an optimistic note today i heard a bbc world report um like little report on um bookstores or independent bookstores are actually doing well for the first time and right. they talked about the strand which <laughs> is a huge bookstore <laughs> no well they yeah. the strand i guess is doing better than it has in the last 10 years it's been 10 years mm-hmm. since the strand has done this well so it's almost as if now we've gone full circle you know granted right. the strand was always a huge independent bookstore so i feel like what's happened is a lot of the smaller ones have dropped off the face of the earth but the ones that are still around um i think people do appreciate that and and you know in a digital age face-to-face contact and and having curation having somebody who right. knows what's in their store and in that you're able to talk to about like what you like and what you might like in the future that's that's invaluable i mean that's how you discover it, your taste and that's how you grow your taste it is. it's like yeah, you know absolutely. outside of an english literature class where else do you sit around and talk to people about what you're reading really talk about what you're reading it's like we need i don't know maybe maybe we need salons to come back you know like people to well, get around I mean, and actually have face-to-face conversations <laughs> Well, I, I mean, it's I, sort I, of what, what the three of us are doing, you know, is talk, yeah. talking to people about books, right. but the, it's different than, like, I was in um, Skylight. Uh, I had a, a book signing in Skylight a couple weeks ago. Skylight Books is a great independent store in, in Los Angeles, for those of you listening. And they've got uh, one store that sells all their regular fiction and nonfiction, and then another store that's all art books. And and I walked in there, and I was, I, I wanted to get... The 33 and a third book writer that you'd recommended a couple episodes ago, mm-hmm. uh, Let's let's Talk About Love. 
but I walked in and I saw their giant wall of graphic comics and I remembered that I wanted to get this graphic comic called a hundred bullets that I'd been, people had been telling me about. And I was just looking at it, and the guy behind the counter said, what are we looking for? And I said, Oh, you know, I, I've, I've got one thing from a hundred bullets. I want to get more. He's like, Oh, we don't have that, but you should take a look at dead body road and right. coward. And so he pulls them down and just shows them to me. And I'm like, Oh fuck. Yeah. Oh, these yeah. Look Coward's awesome. great. Have you read it yet? Uh, not yet. Great. And then I went and I bought the 33 and a third book, which they have an entire rack of. You know, nice. they have all the 33 and a third yeah. books. Oh, do Skylight. they really? Yeah, know. they do. They have the, a whole section of the 33 oh. and a third books. And, and I, you know, I went in there and I spent like 70 bucks on books because this guy was like, you know, if you like this, you're going to like this. And he just pulled them off the shelf. And he just, I'm like, you know, you go into Barnes & Noble and, you know, I like, I like going to Barnes & Noble too, but... The people most of the time at Barnes and Noble, they don't want to help you. They're just there to sell the coffee. <laughs> no, yeah, they don't know. <laughs> it's like they're they, like they just they keys on a computer. Do you know what I mean? Right. They're just like, yeah, what are you looking they're, for? It's like, okay. They, yeah. They're just widget salesmen. Right. Nothing against Barnes and Noble. I no. love Barnes and Noble. But it's a different like it's it's like the high fidelity experience when you go into this independent <laughs> right. bookstore. You want the yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I know I've told you guys this before and I'm sure I've said it on the podcast, but there was I think about an eight month period where I was in New York and I every day Every day, I went to this tiny bookstore in New York, the best bookstore, Three Lives and Company. And oh, right. yeah, first of all, it was that. always packed. And second of all, um, there was a bookseller there who I became friends with, and she's still like a really good friend of mine. <laughs> and awesome. she recommended every single book I read that year. And she was so good at it that I would, you know, and she wasn't pushy at all. I was just like, okay, I loved, I captured the castle. What next? Okay, fun home. Mm-hmm. Um, Donna Tart. I mean, she, Stoner. All of the New York Review of Books books. I mean, she was just feeding them to me one at a time. I mean, like, I feel like a third of the books I talk about on this podcast are from this one person um, yeah. who led me down the path to them, which is just so amazing. Well, you think about, like, you know, in earlier times, like how much a figure like Sylvia Beach with Shakespeare and Company in mm-hmm. Paris, like how mm-hmm. much she changed the literary landscape, you know, right. not only because yeah. she would introduce authors to each other and readers to their authors that she wanted to sort of push, but she also helped publish some of these people, you know, and, mm. and, or help oh, yeah. them find publishers. And especially in an age when like women were not, you know, typically business owners. It's so, it's such a great story. That's a great, yeah. Um, but the, and the other thing about independent stores is that they're funky, right? Like, you know, a Barnes and Noble is a Barnes and Noble and they're going to have the chairs in the same place. And there's going to be somewhat limited seating because they don't want you to stay too long anymore. They used to want you to stay a long time, but now they want you in and out. Or just buy it on your Nook and or your Kindle or whatever. And but you go to an independent bookstore and there's there's the cat that is the house cat of the store that's wandering around. And there's you know there's the handwritten signs of you know what books people like. And it's almost a cliche. It's almost like you know when Community would do the the fake NPR shows. Um, on, uh, if you guys watch the Scum or, or not, I mean Parks and Rec when they'd have the fake NPR. Um, but there's a real sort of inviting feeling of, oh, I'm in a place where they actually are really invested in literature there, and they want me to sit in this uncomfortable chair and read this book. And you just can't replicate that, and I just, I just miss it. Oh, so we're basically so what I'm old. saying is, we're guys, so let's old. buy a store. <laughs> let's, let's get a store. Let's, let's go into business, the three of us. What do you say? But listen to us. We sound uh, like I'm old in. people. When we were kids, <laughs> bookstores were bookstores. Well, I gotta say, Todd, I'm not as separated from the experience as you. I will go into a bookstore and drop $70 on books. I mean, 
a lot. I mean, part of the reason I had to leave New York was that very reason. I was just buying so many books. And then when I was And there was a guy named Joey D who was after you. (laughs) I went back into Powell's like three times in one day. Once behind my husband's back to get a book that I was like, I'm not going to get it. It's a $30 hardcover. I'm not going to get it. And then he like went out into the street and was texting. And I was like, I got to go to the bathroom. And came back with... Like, so I have funny. no impulse control with, with You did shopping. the old fake shit, buy a book move. <laughs> I think I mentioned this last time, I, or one, the, the last time I went to Powell's, I, I didn't leave the first room because I walked away with five books from the first fucking right. room. And I was like, I can't move right. on. If I move into this bookstore, I'm going to have, you know, 30 books before I leave here. Oh. Well, we should probably talk about some books. Yeah, let's talk yeah. about that's some father-son. Um, do you guys have a favorite father-son book or poem or story? Or... I like the Bible is one of my favorites. So there's this guy. I actually thought about bringing that up. I'm not going to, because I was trying to think of what are like the ultimate father-son stories. Because like, God, you know, the Odyssey mm-hmm. has this really strong father-son component. And then I was mm-hmm. like, oh, of mm-hmm. course, like. You know, the gospel of Christ, <laughs> because there's definitely a father son dynamic going on there. And so I started rereading John today because John is a, mm-hmm. always the most sort of it's the weirdest one, by the way. Like if you read John, yeah, it's really strange. Mm-hmm. Like the word is flesh and flesh and word and right. we are the son and the f- it's like what? It's like this weird. It's, you know, it's very poetic, but it's also very circular logic. And and um, I, I mean, I don't know what the hell it's saying half the time. But uh, anyway, I was actually rereading that today. <laughs> Is that your revisit? So, you're joking. That's cool. But no, that's not my revisit. <laughs> I, I, I was thinking about, my, my, my revisit is very obvious and simple, and um, I was going to avoid it because I um, I know the author, but I decided, screw it, I'll just disclose that I know the author. But um, my book uh, is Searching for Bobby Fischer by Fred Waitzkin, which was turned into a movie that is way more popular than the book, I think. But um, I I, loved that movie. Wait, the movie. Yeah, it's an incredible movie. movie. It's an incredible movie. And then um, I ended up at at college with Josh, um, who is the kid from that movie, because he's my age. Um, He's a little bit older than me, but he was at Columbia when I was there and we became good friends. So I got to know him and his dad. And at that point, you know, his dad gave me his book to read and um, he gave me both of his books to read. He had two books out at that time and they were both really great father son books. Uh, The second one was called The Last Marlin. Um, and it's about how the fishing tradition in Fred's family and his relationship with his father who had cancer and then eventually his relationship with Josh and how they fished together and how fishing sort of became this family activity that grounded them. And it's it's a great book, but uh, Searching for Bobby Fisher is clearly his his greatest book that I've read. I mean, I've only read two or three of his books, but that's it's an amazing book. And if I know people probably know the um, know the movie and the movie really pulls the father-son storyline from the book. And that is smart because it's the most emotional. It's really compelling. It's wonderful. But it's actually only, I would say, about a third of the book. Another third of the book is the history of chess and his relationship mm-hmm. with chess. And and it's, you know, what's what's cool about that 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 extra third being sort of in in the in the 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 story of his son becoming this chess champion is that um it's like it starts with that. It starts with him, Fred when he was younger watching the, you know, the famous chess match between Bobby Fischer and, uh, is it Kasparov or Kaparov? I'm going to screw up my yeah, Russian uh, chess player. Kasparov. Yeah. Um, Kasparov. Anyway, you know, I don't know anything about chess. And so reading this book blew me away because Fred is able to write about chess 
like the way most people write about a boxing match or mm-hmm. you know and it's really exciting and he's able to tell you you know to clue you into the the cultural significance of this thing and then the other third of the book is he is actually searching for bobby fisher because at the time that the book was being written bobby fisher disappeared and no one knew sort of what had happened to him they just knew that he had kind of gone loopy and become anti-semitic and disappeared and so fred actually was at the time of writing the book actively trying to write a a, you know a, a piece where he finds bobby fisher so he's trying to find bobby fisher he's traveling the world and he ends up going to russia with josh with his son to see these matches so there's a lot more to the story than just the sort of you know story of josh becoming this chess champion there's a lot more to the book and it's really really wonderful um, and I think it only adds to the father-son story, which is the emotional heart of the book, because you're 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 reading about somebody somebody's sort of intellectual obsession, you know, because mm-hmm. you know, like all of us have things that we're into, and that we know we're not we might not be that great at, you know. Like for me, it's I'm really into music, but I can't play anything. I can't sing. I can't. I don't have any musical talent, but I love music so much. And I geek out on it. You know, I spend a lot of time listening right. to music. And, and and in the same way, Fred was that way about chess. And then his six-year-old son became a chess genius. And it really kind of happened spontaneous. And then they started playing together. And then his son started beating him. And then he realized, like, oh, my God, my kid is actually... So it's a really crazy journey, you know, to see how much you influence and your ideas influence your kid. And so it ends up just being... It's a brilliant, brilliant book. And, and it's actually not that long, even though I just talked about it for a long time. But highly recommended for anybody who remembers the movie. And I don't think you should see the movie before reading it. Just go out and read the, the book. And um. I didn't even know it was a book. I loved Me that neither. movie. But Me the neither. weird thing the weird thing is, in my mind, I also confused Searching for Bobby Fisher with Little Man Tate. Right. They came out about the same time. <laughs> no, no. They came out about the same time. I, they are so, somewhat mm. similar, but Bobby Fisher's a yeah. much better movie. I, I know exactly. I was eight years old when that movie came out. And I I had this amazing fourth grade teacher who built a whole curriculum around the movie and everyone in my, oh my we God. all learned to play chess we all spent like half an hour a day playing chess and then we all went oh, cool. as a class to see the movie and it was cool one of the that? greatest learning experiences of my entire life honestly like i can play chess to this day not well but you know like that's you know that's when kids are that's a great time to learn when you're nine. Yeah. Oh yeah. man right. it was fantastic i'll never forget it she was awesome the- and the thing about movies like that is that because I didn't have, I mean, I had a father. I had someone who was my father, but we, I didn't know him really. We didn't have a relationship. As I, I'd see those movies and I'd think, oh, that, that's what a real father-son relationship could be. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I think, wasn't the father like Joe Montagna mm-hmm. or something exactly. in, the, yeah. in the movie? Um, and, you know, you, like, like, how old were we when that movie came out? I was probably a teenager. Mm-hmm. And you just think, oh, man, if there was someone who I could have in my life who was interesting and intellectual and was into the things that I was into which it turns out my father was all those things he but he just wasn't in my life oh, <laughs> you know I mean that that's isn't that the 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 tragedy of all of a lot of fathers and stories is that man if, if only they the people actually got to know and love one another maybe they'd find that they you know had things in common like books and anger <laughs> perfect <laughs> well but, uh what about you, go. Julia? What's yours? So, um, I was struggling with this for a second because as I was scanning my shelves, I feel like so many books are about the absence of fathers or difficult fathers or whatever. Um, not to say that mine isn't about a difficult father, but um, I decided to go with Long Day's Journey Into Night by Eugene O'Neill, uh, the play, largely because um, 
I just was reminded of this when I thought of it that I saw an amazing production of it a long time ago with um, Brian Dennehy as the father. Um, the oh, sons wow. the sons were Philip Seymour Hoffman and Robert Sean Leonard. And oh the God. mom the mom was Vanessa Redgrave. And it was it was incredible. Jesus. Yeah, I saw it that production so too. I, I got yeah, I sat like um, fourth row center and I oh it was the greatest. Oh, what a it like, was it was not necessarily fun. It was it depressing. Was, it, it was, was not long fun. And just like oh <laughs> but dude, by the end you were so beat down and just with them on this awful, awful day. <laughs> like Yeah, oh, it God. was really it was a beat down. That's such a good way to describe it. But yeah, I mean, it's a play about addiction and alcoholism and morphine. I mean that's that's the mother character, but um it's this fantastic play where you just see all these relationships in this family kind of work around each other and confront each other and then descend into their nighttime horrors of being drunken on morphine um, and dying Which, of TV. frankly, doesn't sound so bad. I mean, if you're going to be on something, <laughs> why not the morphine? Oh. Yeah, I mean, it definitely, I mean, it d- morphine doesn't come out, I'm not going to say on top here, but alcoholism <laughs> doesn't look great either. But if I remember correctly, wasn't she like literally talking to the walls and like I mean, she was definitely yeah. like out of it in that play I, I haven't end, read the play I've only she, seen that production at the end she kind of wanders around talking to herself I mean that's how the play ends um, you know reminiscing about her life before uh, before she was married and her unhappiness and stuff but the you know the alcoholism really does <laughs> take a forefront as well <laughs> I mean who's to say what's the worst in an entire family of addicts it's a tough call hmm. Anyway, it's a great play, and um, Eugene O'Neill writes really, you know, there's so many meaty monologues, and it's not it's not a quick read, but I think, I've never read it sitting down cover to cover, I've only seen productions of it, um, but I, I bet it's worth a read. So, cool. go for it. Get depressed. Uh, so <laughs> I, I think that most things about people are depressing when they're in books. <laughs> I mean, what do we do? We read a lot of happy stories. Aren't all stories also invariably about a father and a son, a mother and a daughter in some way, in some some strange form? You're getting form. deep now. Um, I'm getting but fucking I deep. I agree. I mean, yeah, it's true, especially when you're talking about family situations. No one wants to read about a happy family. Happy families are really yeah. fucking boring. It's like you know, they're great in real life, but as far as what you want to read about or what you want to explore, right. like you want to read about you know conflict, and that's what. It makes some okay, which, guys. which reminds pop me, quiz, did you quiz. see? Yes. Wait, are you guys ready for your pop quiz? Yeah. This is the yes. first line of what very famous novel? Happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Uh, oh, shit, is that? It's it's nonfiction. It's that book. No, um, it's no, fiction. it's Dickens. It's Dickens. <laughs> it's no, um, no. Who the fuck is it? It's somebody really famous. Yeah, yeah. it it's not that. Is it a Russian? It's a Russian. It's a Russian. <laughs> it's a Russian. It's a Russian. You're, you're I knew there. it. It's it's Tolstoy, and it's yes, and it's Anna Karenina. No. You got that. Right? Oh. Yeah, right. Oh Jesus! <laughs> I didn't Google either. My hands are up. His <laughs> his hands are up. Play. First time, any time that we've done the show where we've been able to see his hands. God knows what he usually does. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What what do you got, Ted? Um, 
you know, I my my reading habits for a long time were all about fathers and sons um, because if like I had a bad father, so I, I mentioned him a moment ago. But you know, if you don't really have a father in your life, you end up reading a lot of things to find out what fathers are like. And so you know, I read all those books about men going fishing and shit. Um, but I would say my favorite father-son book is actually Empire Falls by Richard Russo. Oh, right. Um, which is all about families. It's about several different families, but it's, it's specifically about Miles Roby and his father and their relationship and the history of lies that they have told one another and that that exist between them. And also the identity of the father of Miles' brother. Um, and, and I won't ruin it for anyone who's about to read the book, but it, it might not be... Uh, What's the father's name? Um, Mr. Roby, we'll call him. Um, but the the father in Empire Falls is he's the most reliable character ever. He not he doesn't have a point of view in the book. He's the only character without a point of view in the book. He's always just a secondary character in all of the scenes. But he says exactly what he feels. He does exactly what he wants to do. He doesn't give a shit if he hurts anyone's feelings. He loves who he loves. He hates who he hates. He says what he wants, and that's you know. And Miles ends up despising him for being the person that Miles isn't, because Miles is a character who is ruled by passivity and can't make a decision, doesn't do the thing, doesn't do what makes him happy. Whereas Miles' father has always done what has made him happy, even to the point of hurting his own children's lives. And it's, I mean, it's a really compelling book. Um, if you haven't read Empire Falls, I know I've mentioned it a lot on the show in the past, um, maybe not recently, but... I, it's it it's my favorite novel that I've read in the last 15 years by a long stretch. And I think also what's in that book that's really compelling is the relationship between Miles and his daughter, Tick, who's 16 in the book. Um, yeah, I was going to say, that's and, actually what strikes me most, that struck me most from the book. It was more of a father-daughter it, story. Um, yeah, and it's a, it's a really significant father-daughter relationship yeah. in the book um, and a moving one. And just a... I just think Richard Russo, in that book specifically, and he won the Pulitzer Prize for it, so he, I guess other people think this too. Like he, he was able to wrap in sort of a Dickensian great expectation story into a Shakespearean story, into a small town America story, into a story about the gentrification of America. But at the center of it all are just people trying to get happy and people dealing with their parents and, and what their parents did to fuck them up. And I've, you know, I've spent enough time in my life trying to stop being angry for the things that my parents fucked me up with. Um, like a significant amount of the last like 10 years of my life have been forgiving my parents for being horrible people. And then you read books and like Empire Falls and you realize that, man, that's what I've been trying to do. And the books I've been reading too is find stories of forgiving people for the things that they fucked you up with when you were young. And, you know, that I think that's, and we'll, we'll talk about this a bit in... Gabriel, I'm sure. Um, but that's that's the challenge in literature is is making something that a lot of us go through, which is parents who have their own agendas and want to live their own lives. And somehow they fuck you up or somehow they ignore you or somehow you hold that grudge against them. But they're just people and people are fucking damaged, you know, <laughs> and and we make mistakes. And I think in Empire Falls, Richard Russo conveys that in a really human and oftentimes funny way and i don't think you you often see that in those i go fishing with my father stories and we shoot a, a goose and then we talk about our feelings books you know this is it's a lot more about 
suddenly having those conversations and then the ripples of those conversations lasting weeks and months and all that sort of thing. You know what? So that's my I want I wanted to ask you something about as a writing teacher um because I've had multiple teachers fiction teachers say don't write about your family <laughs> because right. it's like sort of the easiest way to bad literature right off the bat like a short story about my mom or my dad or right. do you kind of operate on the same principle like when you're teaching do you encourage your students to to try and write about other subjects yeah and I, what i say often is look take your emotion about x experience with your mom or your dad and apply it to something else and and use it for something else and you know this is actually something I've ended up talking a lot about recently as it relates to my own book, because I have been talking a lot about Judaism and, and sort of reading about Judaism and why I read about Judaism when I did, when I started to write the book, which was that my mother and my father were both dead. And I was trying to figure out, you know, why the fuck am I here? You know, what, what are we doing here? You know, why, why are we having this experience in life and why am I a Jew instead of something else? But, I turned that into a book about a fucking hitman, you know? And so, <laughs> right. you know, you can you can take that stuff and, and put it in there. I, I think the challenge always with students when they're writing um, about their parents is that oftentimes they're trying to find some sort of measure of revenge. And it, it creates a blank spot in story because you're just trying to get your fucking anger out. And I, you know, I, we're, all of us have probably... Well, you guys had good parents, so you, yeah. you probably didn't have as bad an experience yeah, as I had. I had fucking boring. lunatics. I gotta say, our parents rule. It's not yeah. a fair contest. No. no, it isn't. It isn't. And, you know, I, I think you read so much stuff. There's a great moment in some Adam Sandler movie that I'm sure is a horrible movie where mm. some, like, gothy kid rides a bicycle by and says something to him and Adam Sandler says you know, forgive your father already or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) And and we're like, I'm sorry about your dad. And it's just like, yeah, I get it. There, Shauna Kenny, who's a a great writer. She had a book called, I was a teenage dominatrix that came out about 10 years ago, maybe longer than that at this point. And the first line of, I was a teenage dominatrix about her life as a dominatrix was you can only blame your parents for so much. (laughs) And uh, like, I read that and I was like, yes, (laughs) <laughs> you're right so there's only there's only so much you can blame your parents for i hate you mom <laughs> <laughs> if you're a poet these rules don't apply if you're a poet you, you better can, have a mother you, in there you, you, yeah don't forgive just remember that shit and keep writing about it or else you're fucked and with that we shall to a break go we'll be back i hate you mom back hey guys how's it going it's great it seems so long since we last talked everybody's taking an emotional breather before discussing gabriel by edward hirsch which is an epic poem which we will get to in a minute um but first let's tell you about edward hirsch um 
I volunteered to introduce him because I believe I met him uh, during this summer that I worked at Skidmore College's summer writing program. Um, I definitely have at least one other book of poetry of his around here somewhere. Um, and he's written eight collections of poems. He lives in New York. Um, and he's also a MacArthur Fellow. And let's see, what else does the internet tell us? Uh, his second collection, Wild Gratitude, received a National Book Critics Circle Award. Um, and he's just a prolific New York poet who we barely know anything about, but um, we came across this book and we wanted to do it because it's an epic poem, which is something that we have not yet done. And then... And it, we should also note that it is currently a finalist for the National Book Award. Yes, it is currently a finalist for the National Book Award. And I, I don't know, guys. I think it has a pretty good shot. This is uh, some uh, heavy-hitting oh, material. Man. So... Um, what this poem is about is, uh, it's about his son who, who died and that entire experience of dealing with his death, but also going back through his life and examining moments and experiences, um, of parenthood, of his son's personality, of his struggles. Um, he was definitely a kid with a lot of problems, um, both physical and sounds like emotional um, and who suffered from a lot of medical illnesses and disorders, who was on and off a lot of medications, and uh, who ultimately died when he was only 22. So that is what the poem is about, and that is why all three of us will be crying for the next 20 minutes or so. <laughs> oh, man. So, uh, who uh, wants to take I, it first? I, Todd. I, I, let me just ask you each. Uh, it took me about two pages before I was fucking wrecked like absolute tears and then it's page 19 where i had to stop reading um for like two days and that's when he says unbolt the doors fling open the gates here he comes chaotic wind of the gods he was trouble but he was our trouble yeah oh god I Mark oh, God. that line too, and oh, I had planned to talk about that line in this podcast, and then right before we started recording, um, that is what that is the section on the back of the book because it's an absolute oh, turning it is. point. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I mean, oh, you're right. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, you can just God. sleep with it by your bedside and look at that um, whenever you want. I, actually, before we talk about the book, let me just if I can just say one thing. This is. You have to don't download this book, people. Buy oh, yeah. this book. It is a beautiful piece of art. The cover is gorgeous. The it's nice paper. It's just a it like you just want to open it and read it, which is nice. It, don't download it. Buy the real book. I also I also pages. feel like um, the way it looks on the page is perfect, and yeah. I feel like the page turning is perfect mm -hmm. because he's filled up the entire page. Um, with three line stanzas and there's no punctuation. Mm -hmm. So I imagine reading this digitally, it would start to feel like a sort of endless, it would just be too, um, too formless. There's actually a lot of form to this poem. And I feel like it, page by page, it, it, you know, the, the page turns are actually an important part of, it's mm -hmm. like a punctuation, um, to, so I yeah I, I feel the same way like you have to own this book and you're gonna want to reread it because I read this last week because we knew we were gonna do this and I read this last week and now I'm looking at it again I'm like no I can't jump in I gotta start from the beginning mm -hmm. and read the whole fucking thing again because it's such a journey it's so well structured um, and it's 
beautiful and you know obviously emotional and it'll rip your heart out but um how many pages did you last write before you were a uh, puddle of tears um so on the copyright page <laughs> it says file this under children death poetry and i lost it no um sure no, seriously, that's what it says. Like, the subject, you know, the subject yeah, for the Library of Congress. Number one, it says children, death, poetry. Two, grief, poetry. It's like, yeah. And then there's this Blink-182 quote. And Which, I've never listened like, to Blink-182 in my life. But I got it. Like, I instantly yeah. was like, oh, this is probably one of his son's favorite bands. And he's listening mm. to the lyrics and thinking that that relates to his son's life. Which I think is the case. And then you start the book. The I don't know. I, I was like page four. <laughs> I I think I I think it got to the point where I was past crying, you know. Right. It was like I had to keep putting it down and sort of sob by myself, and I was so glad I was home alone. Um, <laughs> it really, it's really, but it's it. I have to say, there's something uplifting about. It. I don't want to, you know, imply that there's, you know, a lot. There's nothing positive because there is something incredibly positive throughout this book, which is. The, the 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 poet himself you know or the persona mm -hmm. of the person who is writing this poem or you know sharing this poem and i'm not gonna i'm not gonna take the you know i'm gonna keep my sort of postmodern stance and say it's the persona of the narrator because i don't i don't want to ascribe too much to you know he obviously edward hirsch decided to write this as a poem not as a non-fiction piece so i'm mm -hmm. sure that there's some art artistry and craft that went into it there's a lot of it but the way that the poem is structured is that you're a lot of the journey is you have Gabriel's life being told to you. I mean, it starts with his dead body and then it sort of goes back to when they first adopted Gabriel all. And then it follows chronologically throughout it follows Gabriel's life chronologically. But then there's also the development of the poem that you're reading, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which it's like the journey for Edward Hirsch to be able to write the poem that you're reading. And I love works of art that do that, that bring you into the process of the creation of the work that you're enjoying um i don't i don't know there's probably a better way to put well, it but that's the only way that it's yeah, coming to I me know, right now i know what you mean i i think one of the most interesting and beautiful parts of this poem is that he never obscures or denies the fact that he is a poet and that is his work right so he's right. almost looking at it you know through a, it really feels like work it feels like he's saying you know the same as if like I had to go to work every day to my insurance job he's saying and I was locking myself in my office creating poetry or whatever and he slides in and out mm -hmm. of these um, references to other myths or poems where uh, the characters have dead children and it's so beautifully done I mean normally that kind of thing can seem so heavy handed but it's so it works because it's wrapping his own life and passions into the way that he's talking about you know talking about his son and the experience of right. losing him right that's exactly what i wanted to highlight if you look on page eight it's where he introduces ben johnson mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and he talks about jen bonson jen ben johnson's really famous poem on the death of his son which um and of course i read in english class in high school and i haven't really read since but um he where johnson at the bottom of page eight he's talking about Johnson. He says, Johnson wrote a poem and called his son his best piece of poetry, a lovely line, a little loathsome. I loved that poem once. He said, we are lent our sons, never take too much pleasure in what you love. 
And I feel like that's the beginning of this sort of journey. Mm -hmm. And then page nine starts with, why go over seven years of fertility, doctor's medicine? Mm -hmm. And then he starts telling the story of, of how Gabriel came into their lives. And for me, that's, you know, the, the beginning of this journey. It's like, can I even do this? Can I write a poem about my dead son? And Ben Johnson did it. So he's sort of looking to his, you know, the master and saying like, can, you know, I like that poem once. Mm -hmm. And I love that line because it's like, it is a great poem that Ben Johnson wrote, but it's, you know, he's sort of saying like, I liked it before I had the, the actual experience, you know? And now that right. I've had the actual experience, he doesn't know if that poem lives up to the experience or I don't know. He's, he's just sort of struggling with this, this, this idea of poetry in the face of this grief. And then we get the poem that he sort of embarks on this epic poem detailing his son's life. And, and then he'll take moments to pull back and talk about other famous works of art that were created because of the death of a, a child. One of the amazing things about the poem is that I think in, in losing someone that we love, we romanticize away their problems and mm -hmm. edward hirsch does not do that his son was a litany of problems both in his control and out of his control and there's a wonderful part of the poem i say in wonderful it's sort of like in the context of when we reviewed excavation by wendy ortiz to say you love this is to say you you have enjoyed being dropped into hell yeah, basically yeah. um but there's this this wonderful part of the poem on page 22 where he goes through all of the diagnosis that Gabriel had received, all the different conditions, and he turns both the conditions and then the drugs into poetry. So he says, all those drug regimens for tics and tantrums, for disorders that were being named by the month and year, obsessive compulsive disorder, mood disorder, oppositional defiant disorder, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, combined type and bipolar disorder, mixed type, also dyslexia, dysgraphia, and then he goes on. And then he says, someone had to keep track of the side effects of taking Clonidine, Adderall, Depakote, Ritalin, Stratera, Abilify, Concerta, Levoxyl, Paxil, Triliptal. And it's just, and all of a sudden, these brand name drugs become the stuff of poetry and, and of admission of the darkest things that my mm -hmm. son was on every antipsychotic. Yeah. I mean, that, I think that's a you know maybe that's what the poet does or any writer is that you know we we say the truth but it's such a hard truth that your child was beyond diagnosis but clearly had problems. I, we have to keep reading because that next page is devastating is, i'm gonna read it it is um I, don't cry the, wait, turn not to cry the evening <laughs> i know the evening of the clinical the night of the psychological the morning face down in the pillow the experts can handle him. The experts have no idea how to handle him. There are enigmas in darkness. There are mysteries sent without searchlights. The stars are hiding tonight. The moon is cold and stony behind the clouds. Nights without seeing, mornings of the long view. It's not a sprint, but a marathon. Oh, Whatever man. we can do, we must do every morning's resolve. But sometimes we suspected he was being punished for something obscure we had done. I would never abandon the puzzle, sleeping in the next room, but I could not solve it. Oh, oh God. <laughs> Incredible. Um, oh, the puzzle God. line was unbelievable. Oh, um, yeah. But to tough. go back to what Todd's saying, gonna, I mean, one thing I need that, to have my wife come in here and hug me for I a know, second. Is, <laughs> so you guys can do it. You guys can do it. So one thing that I think is amazing about this poem, and as we read more, I think it'll 
become even more clear is it's not necessarily just a stark list of things, although it kind of seems that way at first glance, but, you know, the words of the drugs transform into poetry. It becomes about the sound of the words and how they fit together and how they look on the page. And, you know, when I was looking at them, they just looked like this mass of letters, you know? I mean, I've, I've never been on any medication, so... This is so overwhelming to me. Like, I I can't parse out what most of these things are. Um, So it's really fascinating to see it turned into language rather than just drugs or in any sort of context. Mm -hmm. So that that was really cool. Ryder is holding his head in his hands. (laughs) (laughs) You know, about the drugs, though, the... My favorite singer-songwriter, Jason Isbell, was asked about why he puts a lot of, like, brand-name pharmaceutical drug names in his songs. Like, he has a song called Codeine, and he talks a lot about benzodiazepine. He rhymes benzodiazepine in a song. And he said, there is a strange poetry in drug names. Like, someone has to come up with those names. And I remember when I worked for an infomercial company, this was a thousand years ago, and we sold, we made infomercials for drug companies. And I just remember being like in these product meetings for some of these early, um, like uh, Claritin type drugs that we were doing infomercials for. And all the drugs had these beautiful names that sounded like Claritin or uh, Sonata or something. And then, you know, you'd always have to get to that part of the infomercial where they said, may cause rectal bleeding. You might die and take everyone in the room out with you. But, I mean, someone has to come up with that name. And he makes that poetry in here come out by saying those names like that. It's amazing. Yeah, and there's a ton of repetition in here, too of other things and I just as because I know we're going to move later in the poem in a second I can feel it but you know to writer's point earlier of him working through it there's a lot of repetition in the beginning part of a poem the poem where he's really it really feels like he's working out exactly what he's trying to say and it just works so well like it goes from Mm -hmm. cliche to something so specific so the idea or the idea the stanza that I was looking at is um he's just trying to describe what he was like this is like page four or something um Like a bolt of lightning in the fog, like a bolt of lightning over the sea, like a bolt of lightning in our backyard. Mm -hmm. Like the time I opened the furnace in the factory at night and the flames came blasting out. I was unprepared for the intensity of the heat escaping as if I'd unsheathed the sun. And that those kind of repetitions just come over and over and over almost (laughs) relentlessly. Until he yeah. gets into his life. Right. Well, in a way, it's a, it's a it's a perfect use of mixed metaphor, right? Mm-hmm. Like he's you feel like he's constantly trying to find the right metaphor for his son, and he can't, mm-hmm. and so he has to keep reaching to different things throughout the book. So like there on that page is lightning and heat, but then other times like he creates a character of his son he calls Mister Impulsive, mm-hmm. and we get like a list of Mister Impulsive things, mm-hmm. and you know he keeps trying to compare his son to different things and not really being able to find the one thing because his son was such a restless person mm-hmm. and and that is you know the 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 uh, the uh collection the overall collection of of mixed metaphors ends up giving you a very clear mm-hmm. image of his son it's a it's a you know sort of counterintuitive idea but it's really great i i you know going back to this this concept of you know him reflecting on the work of the poem itself or the work of art itself. He also has a section where he 
talks about how long other artists spent on different yeah. works. Oh, mm-hmm. God, that's good. Rainer Maria Rilke sacrificed everything for his art. He dedicated himself to the great work. I admired his single-mindedness all through my 20s. I argued his case. Now I think he was a jerk for skipping his daughter's wedding for fear of losing his focus. Mm-hmm. I love that. And he continues like that, you know, sort of saying, like, I really wish people would just raise their kids instead of written some great works of art. And it's like that tension between like, okay, Gabriel's gone and now all I have is my poetry and all I have is this poem and I'm taking what I, you know, spent so much of my life doing, writing, and I'm trying to give it over to, you know, the spirit or the memory of this, you know, huge person in my life who is now gone. Um, but then he also... That conflict, you know, and that conflict never really settles. Um, sorry, I just want to point out on page 33, he's... He says, Lord of Misadventure, I'm scared of rounding him up and turning him into a story. Mm-hmm. God of scribbles and erasures, I hope he shines through like a Giacometti paint portrait. I keep scraping the canvas and painting him over again, but he keeps slipping away. It's like, oh. So the project of the poem but, itself. But is... right before that, you know, eight eight pages before that is, you know, the, the, the part of the book where I, I had to stop and go and hug my wife which is this is on page 25 when he's he's basically saying to himself why didn't you do more he says um and the father the law who should have been handing down commandments from on high what was he doing all those years when he should have been reassuring his wife and taking charge of his son what was he doing when he should have been standing fast and overruling the experts who were guessing what to do he should have been teaching him character teaching him values teaching him to become the man he was meant to become what was he doing, father, the law, in the middle of life, but fighting for his vocation? Ghost of my earlier self, I see you muttering to yourself and pacing up and down in a room on the second floor of the house, all night, every night, through your late forties. What were you seeking but escape, the transport and the despondency of the old makers, poet who labored so hard at your craft on a scarred wooden desk? It is late now. It is time to turn off the lamp and come down from your study. Well, and then, as Ryder pointed out, a fucking perfect page turn yeah. to a new topic. Yeah. But that 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 poem itself, that could easily be a, a yeah. single poem. Oh, each right one of these there. pages. I, I really do think and you it, could take a single page and it just it has its own, you know, little story, has its own, mm-hmm. you know, operating principles. It's sort of like, it could just be... Each page. I, I, this is, I mean, this is one of the greatest mm-hmm. works of literature I've read in a long time. Uh, <laughs> but so here, here's the question that uh, about that section, though, is that, okay, how much can anyone control? You have to have your life. It, it doesn't matter if he's the poet or if he's the engineer or if he's a lawyer or if he's a doctor or if he's a plumber. He still has to go and, and earn his living and do oh. his job. And his son is still going to be troubled outside of that but i i wonder if because he's a writer and because he's writing about this experience is he looking at himself and saying so much time i spent in folly of this vocation this particular Mm -hmm. vocation where i'm thinking about the human life is he's is the blame somewhere there because it's not like he was building something concrete right you know it's it's sort of an ephemeral question well i think that anyone would blame themselves in the time they didn't spend with their family. Mm. But I, I mean, I think I can't recall him saying this directly, but I think with poetry it, and maybe for a lot of artists in general, it's a really complicated question because 
you know, here he is creating his art off of this experience. That's horrible in a way. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's, It's really... This experience has given him things to work with and work on um, in a way that must be incredibly conflicting. Um, Mm -hmm. But I don't know. I mean, I I really think that anyone would feel helpless and like they wasted some time. I mean, I've had some friends who have gone through various deaths recently and they all say the same thing. It doesn't matter. I also... It doesn't matter who you are or what you're doing. I I, I have a, right. you know, something that might be a horrible idea, but I think that there's something to the idea that, that we can turn to poetry in times of really intense emotion or really, you know, because I think poetry is about trying to use language in untraditional ways to, you know... To, to break cliche, to get beyond the way we're, we normally talk every day or the way we normally write every day. Like, poetry is a conscious effort to surprise and to rejuvenate language. Mm-hmm. And I think in the in the face of extreme emotion and the face of unfathomable things like, like death, um, you turn to poetry. You know, I, I'm, I know I do, you know, like, and maybe that's just because I sort of, think of poetry that way or you know i've read enough um Mm -hmm. at a young enough age to have it affect me that way but i think there is a human impulse to uh to go beyond the sort of traditional expectations of like mourning you know like people want to do something Mm -hmm. kind of extreme or do something different or make a mark with you know about this person in this time who died who was important to me and i think um poetry can be that for a lot of people, you know, reading poems or writing them in, in Edward Hirsch's case. Um, mm-hmm. I think that, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know. I think that there's a reason that people read poetry at memorials, you know, and that they, they write poems. Yeah. And I think that there's a reason that a lot of religious texts are written in that sort of poetic, you know, either a hymn or it's either a song or a poem. It's about like sort of abstracting language. Like if language is just taken as a means of uh, communicating ideas um, like it'd be easier for us to just write out sentences and share them with each other. But poetry is the belief that there's something more to the the form itself, to pushing the language, to reaching in your vocabulary and reaching in your structure of, of sentences. And um, I think that that, that reaching makes sense when you're confronted with something really big and, and hard to wrap your head around. Yeah, and it's wonderful that there's a linguistic form that can be as wide in scope or almost nonsensical, not that this is, as, you know, emotions like grief. You know, it's Mm -hmm. hard to imagine grief being able to be properly and simply contained in a more rigid form. I mean, now, of course, this is a rigidly formed poem, but it is amazing that there is this... Uh, that we as humans have created this yes. option to express things like grief in this boundless of a, a format. Mm-hmm. And we sh- we should talk a little bit about sort of the kind of guy Gabriel was. So he he had some clear issues, um, but he was also the kind of guy who won a bunch of money on a bet, won eight hundred dollars, and he and his friend went and had the night of their lives. That invariably ended with like, garbage men chasing them with baseball bats. 
And then he gave <laughs> right. away his last $40 by buying homeless people donuts. Um, yeah. You know, so he, in a way, like, you, you can see him as the kind of cliche you see in movies about the crazy young guy who's willing to do anything. And there's there's a line in here, and I, I don't know quite where it is, where it says he was scared of nothing but wasn't scared enough, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, where, you know, he, he would do anything, he would try anything, but he was also clearly mentally unstable. Um, but it never seemed like he was a bad guy. It seemed like, you know, he was angry at the world for not being more like him, which is probably a romantic notion that you take from it from seeing him. Um, mm-hmm. But also, he's a son that a father is trying to understand, a son who's not like him. And I, I think it's, you know, it, it's a fascinating portrait of, I say fascinating a lot on this show. I've, I've listened mm-hmm. to the shows and I say fascinating mm-hmm. a lot, but this time I actually mean it. It is a fascinating portrait of a father trying to understand someone who is innately unknowable because he's so, a wild card. He'll do anything. So you guys want to know when I cried the most? And yes. it's related yep. to what you're saying is um, that story about the buying donuts for homeless guys is actually um, a section, a couple of page section of his friend telling Edward Hirsch this story. And that made me so emotional because yeah. imagining a father, no, you know, basically like begging this friend for any information like any new information about your child who no longer exists you know like what Mm -hmm. can you tell me that i don't know about my own child i mean that is just the most beautiful emotional moment it's you know i i know adults who have befriended the friends of their children after they've died because they're just a portal of stories and ideas and perspectives that you know, the parent can never get. And so it's exactly what you're saying, Todd, is he's searching this other, you know, kind of troubled mm-hmm. young guy for any anything that he can grasp out of his son. And then um, in, the, in the end, in the acknowledgments, which is actually when I probably cried the most, um, he mentions this guy, and it's really beautiful. Hey. Yeah, special thanks to Joseph Straw, whose adventures with Gabriel lift the spirit of this book. Two of the sections adapt his eloquent off-the-cuff eulogy. And, you know, isn't the whole story well, in I'm that? I'm going to cry a little bit. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, oh, there man. is that little sub-story of their friendship, too, which is notably beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, I think, it, I think um, you know, this kind of relates to what we were saying earlier about how when we were talking about boring families or happy families being boring. <laughs> uh, in a way, it's part of the part of the what makes this poem so emotional and great is is the conflicted relationship he has with gabriel you know it's not easy it's not like gabriel was easy to just immediately love he wasn't a passive simple kid he was a really you know complicated puzzle like he says in that one section and i think that that whether or not your kid is as extreme as gabriel i think every parent probably feels some level of contradictions about their children you know and some levels of of unknowingness about their own kids or, you know, the way we feel about everybody in our lives, especially family members. Um, and so Gabriel as a character in this poem represents that perfectly. Mm -hmm. And the relationship of, you know, our narrator to that, that character is really, it's perfect, you know, because, you know, I don't, I don't have somebody like this in my life, but I 
feel very strongly about Gabriel after this poem. And part of that is because his character is so well represented and it's hard to, it's not easy. It's, it, it's like something it, I'm still having to think about. And Edward Hirsch does something narratively really amazing before that, which is that he turns Gabriel's autopsy report into poetry. Oh. Where he actually, you know, you find out what a person is at the end. Like he gives you the cooked down details of, um, you know, the body is a, of a well-developed, well-nourished, average frame, 182 pounds, 70 inches white male. That's what Gabriel is now. And then he goes in and he lists um, his right kidney weighed 180 grams. His left kidney weighed 190 grams. His bladder contained 250 milliliters of straw-colored urine. That's who his son is now. Mm -hmm. And I, I have never seen anything like that in a poem before. And it was... Like, it was really hard to read that. And it makes you think about anyone you've ever loved who you've buried, um, who that, like, you guys know when you've been around someone who's dead that that's not them anymore. Like, there's a palpable difference between a living creature and a dead creature. And just to know the sort of basic facts of the person you love the most, this child of yours, of just what their heart weighed. Oh, man. Yeah. It's really hard. Um, it's really hard to read. One yeah. more section that I really loved. We're just reading you guys the poem. All rare. Yeah, what we're going to do is uh, Ryder Strong is going to read the audiobook of Edward Hirsch's Gabriel for you all. I don't think I could, man. You heard me try and read that section earlier. My throat closes up with emotion. I can't do it. I, I, so I want to read another section, but I'm scared. I won't do it because I what know. What I've been doing while I read is uh, I've been pinching. This is the actual God's honest truth. When I read, I'm pinching my, the skin uh. under my knee so that I'm not crying. Uh, so anyway, one more part I want to read or at least address is, so we learn pretty late that he, on the day that he disappeared, he went into a hurricane and never came back. And then, I mean, I just thought this was so brilliant. Edward Hirsch lists out all these times that they were out in the rain together or wet together. Mm -hmm. And they're just mm -hmm. totally devastating to me. So we've, we've just yeah. learned that, that that's happened. And then he said, um, when he was 10 years old, I had to drag him out of the swimming pool in a deluge. He wanted to cannonball off the diving board. He wanted to stop and slash some golf balls. He wanted to soap up the wet car and let the sky wash it down. Um, and then that just goes on forever, and it's very sad. So I'm ready to proclaim something for all of you people in Listenerville and to Ryder and Julia. I can't imagine mm -hmm. a more moving book that I'm going to read this year. Like, right now, my favorite book I've read this mm -hmm. year, like, novel... It's Fourth of July Creek by Smith Henderson. It's a great book. I absolutely loved it. Gabriel fundamentally has changed my emotional landscape. It it is I, I can't yeah. think of a better book this year. If it doesn't win the National Book Award for Poetry, um, I'm gonna have to go fight somebody. Edward Hirsch's problems are now my problems. I take him on wherever they are. So is it is the National Book Award, is it divided into fiction and poetry, or is it just one? Oh, no, there's, it's fiction, poetry, like, nonfiction. Oh, okay. Oh, well, then it's just got to win, right? I mean, I can't imagine. I don't know. what. Let me see what the other nominees are. Not that I think we've read any of them. Um, but it, And it's also, you know, he it's a bestseller also. He was on Charlie Rose last week. Um, 
and it's really well it's a perfect it's a perfect you know it's perfect for people that don't really normally like poetry too because of the narrative component it's really narrative mm-hmm. i mean you have a very clear um progression of a, a a death and then you go back to when he was born and you move forward to back up to his death and i i think that that makes for a way less disorienting read than a lot of poetry out there especially book long poems mm-hmm. you know like I don't know if anybody's mm-hmm. ever tried to read Omarose by Derek Walcott or, you know, these other sort of famous book-long poems. It, they're usually tough, you know? It's usually a slog. Um, but this one is not. This one will take you two hours. Mm. You'll have to stop because you're crying a lot. But <laughs> it's it's a smooth, quick read. The plot is, is very obvious and uh, immediately discernible. And then you just get to enjoy all the different poetic techniques that he's using to express grief and the yeah. and his thoughts about his son. And that's, so the other a perfect poem. The other poets up this year include um, some pretty good poets: Mark Strand for his collected poems, Louise Gluck for Faithful, mm-hmm. Faithful and Virtuous Night, um, mm-hmm. Fred Moten, who's a, a wonderful poet for the Field Trio. But none of these books, and there's I think there's ten finalists here. None of these books are part of the national conversation like this has been this one is. and the judges this year are eileen miles who's a wonderful poet uh katie peterson rowan ricardo phillips robert polito and paisley rectal rectal r-e-k-d-a-l um so none of those names mean anything eileen miles is a very good poet uh, i've never heard of the other people but i'm sure they're quite good um because they're the judges for the national book award well so they must be good. we vote for this one yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, it, um, it, it's a really moving book. Everybody should just go out and buy it. Just it's a great book, it. yeah. Literary Disco is produced, edited, and saved every episode by Tucker Ives. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and thanks for listening. Bye.